On episode 313 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn pro strategies and techniques with Coach Joel Myers. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, this is Mirban, your host. I hope you're doing well and playing a lot of tennis and improving your game. I've been testing a lot of rackets lately, and I think I'm going to probably talk about my experiences about that in a future podcast episode uh, and do a YouTube video as well on comparing some of the rackets I've tested. Uh, but yeah, it's a really interesting process and uh, really fun, though, just trying to experiment and see which frames improve what parts of your game and whatnot, uh, if they do. <laughs> but in any case, today's episode, I have an interview that I did a while back with Coach Joel Myers. Uh, he is a fantastic coach who does a lot of great content. I've seen a lot of it on Instagram, uh, especially um, really nice bite-sized but very impactful content. And Joel is a world-class tennis coach in San Diego at the Coronado Tennis Center, and he was a three-time collegiate All-American. He was ranked in the top 10 in singles and doubles in the NAIA and was the National Player of the Year in 2010. And yeah, uh, in, in this interview, we talk about the key technical change that helped Joel add 20 miles per hour to his serve, how to improve your forehand and backhand technique, Joel's top winning singles and doubles plays that'll help you win more matches, and much more. So again, this interview was done a while back, and maybe you've heard, uh, heard it, uh, even if you have. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it, and regardless, just so much information there. I mean, uh, I often listen to interviews and watch content, you know, several times over just to try to, you know, relearn as much of it as I can. So repetition is definitely key in both learning and, and practice. So I hope you really enjoy this interview with Coach Joel Myers, and without further ado, here it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have Coach Joel Myers on the podcast. Joel Myers is a fantastic coach and a player as well, which we'll talk about a little later on the show. And uh, I've already told you a bit about his background uh, in the intro and all that. But Joel, I just want to thank you for taking your time to come on the podcast and I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime, anytime. And so, yeah, on today's episode, we're going to talk about pro strategies and techniques. And I've noticed a lot of really great uh, content, especially on your Instagram page, about how to uh, just really level up your your techniques and and you know little seemingly you know small uh, tips which actually make a huge impact in our games. Um, but I want to uh, you know applaud you too on your uh, your social following that we were just talking about earlier, and you have you know nearly fifty thousand Instagram followers, which is mind blowing. I mean, I'm not close to that, but uh, you know I, I feel like it may some of these traits of uh, being a good tennis player could correlate with uh, you know your great following. So how did you uh, build up your your following on Instagram like that? Yeah, I think uh, it really started with me um, just doing drills with juniors and showing showing what um what they could do and and then learning a lot of and finding drills on instagram and, and sort of using that as a tool and i started just really sharing um things i was learning and things that i, I knew and um from there it sort of grew and then i i did this, some other um annotated videos and i started getting into more um, video analysis and 
people seem to like it. And so I spend a little bit more time doing it. Now I almost every other day I'll uh, post a video or a tip and it's, it's just built from that. Awesome. Yeah. I think that consistency that you just mentioned yeah. is one big key uh, for that. Was, I mean, you know, was there any particular video that you feel really hit off with viewers? Is there any kind that you think uh, is, is uh, that your audience likes the most to see? There was um, some comparison videos. I mean, there was any time that Roger Federer on Nadal is mentioned, everybody loves that. Everyone wants to know why their, their forehand or their serve is so good. And um, yeah, a lot of, lot of fundamental videos or um, comparison videos. Um, so I have a few where I've, I've broken down some technique of some players that the technique and the fundamentals are actually quite similar in some, in some forehands or some serves that you wouldn't really otherwise, um, I guess, know until you see the video. But um, video has been huge to, to I guess, help me to be, become a better coach, but also for my, my players. Because as you know, when you see yourself on video, it's not anything like you, like you think. So it's, it's always a bit of a shock when you see yourself on video. But comparing play, uh, my players to some of the pro techniques and showing them they can improve has been really, really important. And I've been able to share that on Instagram and people seem to really like it. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I, I talk about uh, using video a lot and you're 100% correct. And like, sometimes I think I'm hitting the ball great flawlessly. And then I actually watch myself and I see, oh, wow, I'm actually on my back foot and I got this little hitch going on. And it's, you know, <laughs> so it really yeah. helps Im Im improve yourself and, and your game. And uh, it's curious uh, with, with my guests, you know, how you first ended up actually getting into tennis. Sometimes I get some interesting stories about that. Yeah. So um, I... Basically, I played basketball when I was very young um, and I had to make a change because I got heel spurs. So I ended up changing to, to tennis because it would look lighter on my feet. And I was always really interested in the one-on-one -on -one aspect of tennis. I loved that if I, if I won, it was on me. And if I lost, it was also on me. You know, I didn't really like that about team sports where I could play poorly and the team could win or I could do really well and the, and the team could lose. So it, it basically was just a whole lot of me hitting on the on a wall and I got pretty good at hitting on a wall. And then I started playing tournaments as a junior and we traveled and I ended up moving to Melbourne when I was really young for training. And I spent most of my time growing up um, at the National Tennis Center there where the Aussie Opens played. And so I got to be around, you know, see the best players in the world and be around some amazing coaches. And it sort of just ignited uh, the passion to want to take it further. And then I ended up um, getting injured late in my junior career and the next option was college. And then things sort of went really quickly. I accepted a, scho a scholarship over here at Point Loma Nazarene in San Diego. Uh, and then once I, I got a couple of years in, I realized San Diego is a pretty good place to be. And then I ended up um, starting my coaching business not long after I graduated and I've been here ever since. That's awesome, man. Curious, you know, when you went to... Uh... Uh, the tennis center in Australia, and, and you were exposed to a lot of uh, the top uh, players. Like, were there? I mean, can you name a couple of them that you can remember of, uh, training with and seeing? Yeah, I mean, I was, we were always around the Dave, Aussie Davis Cup team. So Wayne Arthur's, Richard Fromberg, Leighton Hewitt, Mark Philippoussis. Uh, these guys were. We all get to watch them really close up, and I think being able to see these pros really close up, you sort of you get a feel for. Oh, you know, you, you, it's amazing how good they are, but also you can you feel like that's a goal and you can towards that and i used to remember watching agassi get to melbourne very early and he would uh practice with brad gilbert and always go out and watch agassi practice but in in particular one of the memories i had was watching him hit left-handed forehands 
And I remember his left-handed forehand was unbelievable. You would think he was lefty if you if you had seen him do it. But it was just something that it's like, wow, you, they're so close. You, you, you know, you're exposed to that. And I feel like if you are exposed to that, the goal isn't so far away. If you only ever see them on TV, I think it's tough because you don't appreciate the physicality and the hard work that goes into it. But you really, you really appreciate how hard they work to get that good. Love that, Joel. And uh, speaking of the uh, left-handed forehand, I'm curious, you know, a lot of people say that to uh, practice your two-handed backhand, you should hit some lefty forehands. Is there any correlation between how good your lefty forehand is if you do practice that and your two-handed backhand? Uh, I, think, I think there is. I mean, I, I used to work on that a lot with my players and then I sort of found a better way to teach it, which was more of a, of once you set the racket head in the right position, it's more of a drop and a pull motion. And I, I found the analogy to be um, much more successful with my players where it was more like you're dropping the racket head and pulling a rope through the finish. So you're not overemphasizing one hand or the other. I found that some players can get a little bit forced if they're just trying to work on the on the left hand. But I think it can be a really useful drill because you know you have to you have to drop the racket head down, but you don't want to necessarily make a giant loop with the left hand to do it. It's a, l- a little bit easier to manage the left-handed forehand if you are just dropping the racket head and pulling anyway. But I found a better way personally for, for me and my, my players, so I started using that instead. Very cool, Joel. And you mentioned, obviously, you know, you've got the junior career and then you uh, played in college and got a scholarship there and then you went on the coaching. But I, I've seen that you've uh, coached at some very elite places like uh, IMG and the Harry Hopman Academy. So where did that all fit in? What was the progression between then and then, uh, you know, your coaching business? So I, I trained there. I trained at those places. I didn't coach there, but okay, um, I, I, picked up, uh, I picked up a lot of training techniques and information from all the places that I went. I was exposed to so many different coaches. Pat Cash was one of them. Jose Higueras was one of them. But I, I really remember just all little, little drills and little tips. And I didn't have any specific private coach that I worked with. So I would take in all the information from everybody. I would try it out for myself and then I would keep what I what I liked and I, I would, would discard what I didn't really like. So if it works for me, I kept it. Um, but I do remember a lot of different drills and, and, and strategy stuff. And it's helped me not only in my playing, but also in my coaching. Very cool. Very cool. And do you remember, or, well, you do, but can you tell us about like one or two of those, those little uh, drills or pieces of advice from, from yeah. those great coaches for us? For sure. So uh, one of them that comes to mind was when we were at IMG Academy and it was a very windy day in Florida. And I remember we did a drill where we, um, we slice approached into the wind. Everybody on the windy side of the court would hit us, would, was working on slicing into the wind because the opponent down the other end would have a lot of trouble with a lob if they had to lift it. Mm. It was very windy. So I, I specifically remember thinking that's really smart you know, to use the conditions to your advantage. Um, you know, and not so much approaching with the wind at your back because the lob is easier and the pass is easier. So that was a very small one that I that I picked up. I, I do remember also um, when I was at Pat Cash's Academy in um, Queensland, we did some video work on my serve and, and he showed me that I had absolutely no load in my back leg and I thought I had a good serve at the time. And this is when we would you would take a video and then maybe a week later you would set a time to go and review it. You know, it's not like today where you look at your phone and you can show your student right away what's what's going on. So I remember he, he uh, took a video of my serve, lined, it, lined all the, the loaded position against Sampras and Goran and 
players that were sort of taller as well. Um, and he just showed me where my, my leg wasn't loading. And I was probably able to add maybe 20 miles an hour to my serve based on that. So there are a couple of things that I remember and it sort of sticks with you when you have some success with something like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, huge tip there. And I remember interviewing Dr. Mark Kovacs, <laughs> yeah. who's a, a great uh, you know, expert in, in uh, your physics, your um, yeah. uh, physical abilities, and he's a sports science expert, basically. And so yeah. he was talking about loading the back leg, and that was, that was really, yeah. really huge. Uh, with that, was that, was that an easy fix for you? Did you have any mobility or any uh, issues like that where you had to, to work on to be able to load? Or was it just, uh, okay, now I need to load. I didn't know that or didn't realize it, and then that's it. It took a while. So actually, um, Pat's cue was to stick the left hip out. And mm. um, that was, it was a, and, and that was what I was working on. I think if you know any of Mark's work, he, he says that that cue is a little bit misleading and you should really think about loading the, the right leg, which makes more sense. I sort of figured it out through trial and error. I was trying to really stick my hip over the baseline. But if you do load your back leg correctly, your hip will come out. So that's sort of a, um, an effect. Hip, sticking the hip out as an effect of loading the right leg, and so I got there eventually. But it was—it definitely was difficult. A, a change like that was was hard to make when you've done thousands and thousands of reps. But I think exaggerating makes the biggest difference. When you think you do something, um, you, you're probably not anywhere near it. So you've got to keep exaggerating. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, I, that's something I've also noticed for myself, and it, it makes a huge difference. And I have a tendency to put too much weight on that front foot sometimes, but. Uh, I guess on the topic of the serve, Joel, uh, since I want to talk to you a lot about technique, personally, did you have any other uh, significant changes on your serve uh, technically that, that really made a big difference as well? Um, that was basically the only one. Yeah. I, I spent so much time mimicking pros. I actually I didn't have a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. I was in group environments, in academy environments. So I got to play a lot of great competition, and but I didn't get a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention to detail. Um, so that's what I'm big on now as a coach. But I did a lot, a lot of serving when I was growing up. I didn't always have somebody to play with, and it was sort of over trial and error. And I, I remember I really went after my serve all my junior career. I, I wanted to hit it huge. So I spent a lot of time doing that in, in the practice court. But the biggest probably change that I can remember making is uh, is definitely that loading of the back leg that was the the biggest one that i remember everything else was sort of more natural to me because i did spend a lot of time watching um so i sort of modeled my serve more off mark philippusis and uh which was a nice nice serve to try and copy <laughs> but you know he had a, he had a monster and he was around and that's what, what i was coming back to earlier is when you can see a guy like that serve from you know 10 feet away you, you really get a feel for how do they do it and you just go out and you, you i was sort of mimicking that very nice, very nice. And so when players go out on, on the practice court and they serve, which I, I mean is is huge, it's so crucial yeah. um to do that is spend time on the 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 shot that you're hitting half the time uh, to start yeah. the point. Um, at least in singles, were there any like mistakes that you made? Like I'm just wondering of like what is the yeah. proper process to 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 take like when you are yeah. serving? Um, you know, so if you could enlighten us on that. Yeah, sure. I think something that I try and get my players to work on is is one specific serve at a time. I mean, I know I think we can get caught up in trying to hit all the spots. Um, I think if I had to go back and retrain myself, I would have spent a lot more time on one specific serve at a time and built that as a real strength, which would have allowed me to then open up the other serves. If you you know you can be 
good at all locations, but maybe not great at one. And if you can start and really build on one spot, uh, you can build strategy off that. So, you know, have a primary have a primary target on the juice side, have a primary target on the ad side, and really nail those down. Um, and then from there, you can go back and add add more tools to the serve. Maybe it's more a different spin. You know, maybe it's it's more pace to an area, but you you definitely have to have one go to serve that you know when you're coming up to the line. Uh, and it's a big point. That's the one you're going to go with. That's your best chance to win the point. So I think that to me is a, is a very important distinction, not just going out there and hitting a million serves at random targets, but to really be de- detail orientated and spend some time on one at a time. Love that. Great stuff, Joel. And I'm just curious too, I mean, how many serves generally were you hitting uh, per practice session on your serve? I would take a big basket and probably spend an hour and a half and that's probably too too much time. I know that some specialists have said that you don't want to overserve your arm out, and they recommend around 100 serves a day, 100 to 150. So if you play a match, you're probably a three-set match, you're probably looking at serving maybe 150 times. So if you take that into account and you go out and practice, probably around 100 serves a day is what you would want to target. It's a lot, and I know juniors probably, that probably shocks a lot of, a lot of juniors, but you know it is such a, a huge part of the game and um you can't hide a weak serve you know it's one of the you can hide a, a lot of other shots but you definitely can't hide a weak serve yeah 100 percent, joel so with, with the ground strokes generally is there a particular mistake technically that players just make um that that actually apply to to all strokes like just you know one example uh let's say like oh you know they're hand position or yeah. the rotation or something like that, that applies to all the strokes. Like, is there something that you see with your students that you can talk about that a lot of them make mistakes on? Yeah, I think uh, in general, and I mean, this is really generalizing, but you know, contact point is going to be the most important thing um, on a ground stroke or a volley. And it doesn't really matter how you get there. I know a lot of people talk about WTA forehand or ATP forehand. Yeah. You know, if, if, if your contact is excellent, then you can take the racket around the body. Um, if you're if you're really struggling though, if you hit the ball late, if a deep ball or a ball with pace pressures you and you often hit it late or you can't do what you want with the ball, then you have to consider shortening the take back up or changing the way you set up for the shot. But you know the, the most important thing is that you're able to make good solid contact and put the ball where you want it. And so I find that players, when the ball is very deep, they take the same size take back. Um, and they'll end up having to lean backwards or they'll have to move backwards towards the back fence in order to keep that same size take back where, you know, really good pros will just shorten the take back up. They'll minimize it, make good contact and, and neutralize that ball. So contact is very important. And I think that's where it doesn't matter what type of, you know, style of forehand or backhand you're in. That's if you can make really good contact, I think that's going to be your, your most important part of that stroke. Yeah, really good one there, Joel. Uh, when I was hitting with my friend Victor on Saturday, um, I, he was having trouble with his forehand volleys, and I noticed that it didn't like the 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 contact point for him where he was hitting. It seemed off, so he wasn't you know hitting very good shots on that particular stroke. So, how do you find that proper contact point, and then is it different depending on your grips and depending yeah. on the shots? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely um, dependent on the grip. And, and, you know, everybody's is, grip is, is slightly different. Um, some people are on, you know, Eastern or semi-Western or Western, and some people are in between those grips. So it's a really personal thing. But, you know, you, your footwork is related to that. You want to make sure you're moving your feet to get an optimal contact. 
but you still are going to have to change your the size of your take back um, at a really high level. I mean, I, I think I, I posted recently a video of Del Potro where he's hitting two forehands, one that's very close to the baseline to deep off a deep ball where he has a very short take back compared to his normal, you know, monster hammer take back um, where the ball is shorter. But it just goes to show that, you know, players must change the size of their, of their take backs. And you'll see that re- a lot of times when they move from the French Open to Wimbledon in that two or three week period where they're, they're getting off the clay and onto the grass and they have to shorten the take backs because the ball skids through a little faster. So, you know, that's something that players have to keep in mind. If and if they want to play closer to the baseline, if they want to maintain their core positioning, then they're going to have to be very good with that. You know, I can, you can think of like a Roger Federer, for example, can play very close to the baseline because he can minimize those take backs and just um, stay where he is and use the pace of the incoming ball. Got it. So for a player who's just kind of stuck in, they have the same exact take back, the same exact length and tempo. Like what, what is the solution? I mean, do you, do you just play around and, and practice like any uh, insights on, on how to do that? Um, yeah. I mean, you can, to minimize the take back, to make them hold their positioning better, you can set up some markers behind the baseline and, you know, maybe it's three or four feet behind the baseline. You can play some points out or rally and you don't allow that player to back, back up. So they have to prepare earlier. They have to shorten the swings. So that's one way to do that. Um, another way is to play points out where you're not allowed to go behind the baseline at all. That'll make you shorten the swing up even more. So, you know, if you're not thinking about going, you're going deep into technique, then you can play lots of different games where you're sort of handcuffed into doing the things that you have to in order to make that technique happen, like shortening the swing. But, you know, that, it's just... A, Something that you, you need to, to think about is, is am I taking too big of a swing when I, when I should be just shortening it up? Very similar to a return. You know, players go big on the return swings when they really shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, really good stuff there, Joel, again. This is, I don't know how, if this may be like a tough, really t- tough question to answer or maybe the answer is it depends. But if you were to create like the ideal player, I mean, what, like how much... <laughs> How much spin would they be hitting? Like, what type of grips would they have? What type of game would they have? Yeah. Like, I'm curious about your insights into the like, the, you know, the ideal player to uh, be able to handle, um, you know, today's game. Yeah, I mean, well, I think you, you got to start with the serve and return, and I think you'd have to have a serve that's a weapon. It doesn't have to be a huge, it doesn't have to be a huge bomb, but it, it you have to be able to hit spots. You have to be very solid on the second serve. Um, I think you need a distinct weapon from the ground and the forehand seems to be the easiest one to generate pace and spin. You'd want a player that's rock solid on return that misses very few return mistakes. And then you need somebody who's comfortable coming forward and looking to transition and put pressure on. But, you know, I think something in general that I come across all the time with players of all levels is that when they're behind the baseline, even really good players, they still hit really low on the net. And it's, it's something that, it's really common, surprisingly common with good players. Um, and it, it means they make more mistakes, they drop more balls short. And then when the ball ends up on the other player's racket, it's more in their strike zone because it's not rising and, and pushing them back. So that's something that I've, I've just noticed. Um, the margins are probably not high enough with most of the players that I train. Gotcha, Joel. And does that necessitate to that we have, uh, that we hit just with, with more spin, we hit um, with more top spin or? Can you actually even achieve that if you if you hit a flat ball normally? Yeah, so I mean, I think trajectory-wise, 
you know, no good player hits a flat ball, totally flat ball. They all have spin. It's just more of the trajectory. I think when people say, you know, a flat shot, to me that is, is a trajectory thing. It's not a, um, a spin thing because you can't control the ball with, without spin. But I think the, the best players use their legs to get, to get um, a lot of power from the ground. And, you know, they're able to, to play above the net when they're, when they're behind the baseline in order to push their opponent back. And that way they don't have to go to smaller targets on the outside. You know, as I think we all know, we've all played somebody who probably hits down the middle really deep and it's very hard to do anything with that ball. So targets are huge, but it de- definitely makes it easier when you use more spin. It's very tough to be um, consistently hitting deep um, when you have a flatter trajectory. Got it, Joel. Yeah, I was especially curious about, you know, your take on how much spin we should be hitting and all that. Because I think I remember, I forgot if it was a commentator or a fellow player that they were commentating on uh, Mackie McDonald and they said, Oh, like I, I think he has a, a really good future on the tour and especially because he hits the ball really flat. So I wasn't really sure, you know, why that yeah. could, could be the case. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? I, I, well, I, I think um, if you step up inside the baseline and the ball is higher, you can flatten it out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's situational though, you know. I mean, you could say Del Potro hits a, it's a flat ball and he definitely does when the ball is above the net, but you slice the ball down low below the net, he's going to have to roll it. It's not possible to hit it flat. So I think that is more a trajectory thing than, than a spin thing. And I think sometimes players, when they watch TV, they see how hard these guys hit. Their only chance to hit s- similar speeds is to flatten the ball out, and it's just not as consistent. And they can't um, hit their spots as well. So when, when the ball is there to be hit, it's above the net, you're inside the court, you do have to drive it. But I definitely think when we, when we think of flat, it's more trajectory than it is about the spin on the ball. Gotcha, Joel. So, I mean, with that in mind, where we do need to definitely be able to flatten out the ball as well as hit spin yep. on the ball, are there any negatives to the Western grip, especially long term? You know, maybe if, as you get older, um, you know, is, is that maybe too extreme of a grip for players overall, or do you think that's still a viable option? Um, no, I mean, it can be. I think it's from, you know, I had a Western grip when I was very young, and, and it was uh, it's something I'm very glad that I changed. I ended up being six foot six, so that's a problem when the ball's down <laughs> low. But uh, I'll tell you where there's a real weakness on a Western grip, and that's an out wide serve. Uh, sorry, out wide return on the juice side. When that ball gets out wide, it's very very difficult for a Western uh, a guy with a Western grip to get the ball back in play. Um, and also, a lot of times they have to change to a much more extreme backhand grip. So there are pros and cons to all grips. But you know, I I don't teach Western. I start players in semi Western and let them gravitate towards eastern or a little bit over towards semi-western but it just it does make it a little bit harder to drive the ball um when it's there to be hit so but it does make it easier to get spin early on yeah that's a great insight uh, because you made me think of myself because uh you know hopefully my opponents aren't listening but uh (laughs) when i get sliced out wide it's tough for me sometimes because i i have it's like a little tilted more towards the western so and for my forehand, so when I have an out wide return, it's kind of tough. I have to kind of like flick it almost sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so it is, you know, pretty difficult as well. And those low balls also are, are tough too. So that's really good stuff there. So in regards to like, say if a player, they have, you know, a few technical flaws in their, in the, in a particular stroke, like what's your approach for going in and fixing that stroke to, uh, to make it technically sound? I mean, yeah, the first thing is like um, what's happening with it? Uh, are you, is it just hemorrhaging points? 
Is it a real problem um, that needs fixing? Sometimes it can be a decent technique and they just need to manage their game better. So you see a lot of players, um, they want to hit their backhand just like their forehand, but the backhand makes a ton of errors. So they need to make a change in how they approach the strategy from that side of the court. Uh, but you know, if there's a real glaring technique, technical uh, deficiency, then you have to go and spend some time um, restructuring it, and that can take a bit of time. Or you need a, you need an option if you're going to still compete. So if it's let's say it's a backhand, then you need to have a slice that can. If you have problems with the topspin, then you've got to have a slice that can you can use um, as a substitute. But I think you know it's, it's really important that that if there is a glaring uh, problem that you go to fix it and if there's not maybe they just need a, a different way to, to think about how they're using that stroke on the court gotcha joel and and how about um your what's a good process for uh planning before a match i mean a lot of players i think they just end up you know showing up on the court and then trying to problem solve later on if they do at all so what what's what are some tips for us to uh to properly prepare for our matches yeah, you know, I think the, the biggest tip that I give to my, my players when they go into play is just to focus on the tennis. I mean, there's a lot of times players go in and they, they really worry about winning or losing, really. I think that affects everybody. Um, they're really, they think they get a first round, they've got to win the first round or they've got to beat this player to get a UTR and they stop focusing on what they need to do to win and we should have a good performance and play good tennis. And I, I found that, you know, using visualisation and, thinking about the strategies and having a plan and whether you, you write that plan down. Um, I have a lot of my players actually go in with a notepad and pen or they have a, a written um, guide and these are the things that you're going to work on and these are the things you're going to try and execute and you're going to do your best to do that. And if you lose, that's fine. But it's very, it's very hard, especially with junior tennis, because I think um, you know, kids feel so bad when they lose um, that they sometimes just that's what they focus on is, is that they don't want to lose. or you know, they need to win. But I think that's really probably the biggest tip is to really focus on the tennis. What type of tennis do you want to play? Go out and try and play that tennis. You know, so you shouldn't be happy coming off the court if you just spent two hours moonballing your opponent to death. You know, may, maybe it would have been better to, to lose that match going for your shots and, and maybe you're better for the next match for that because if you spend three, four years moonballing your opponents to death, that's three, four years wasted where you could have been developing. Yeah, love a lot a lot what you pretty much all of what you said there and kind of reminded me of my junior days. Um, yeah. I mean I, I remember in particular like uh just when I played certain players like thinking about too many uh superfluous things like oh like if I lose and you know they're going to talk yeah. about me and like I've always beaten this player and and I'll you know they'll make fun of me or whatever. Yeah. And then also I yeah, and I, I remember also in college where um, you know, I was up six two five one in in a Cornell Invitational, and it was my very first college match, and I, I was thinking, oh wow, it's going to be great to win, you know. And then obviously I, you know, choked and, and lost. Yeah, um, and that's what happens to players, right? That's that's why players they they get up yeah. in the score, they get match point, and they, they think, oh, I'm at the finish line, and they stop actually focusing on, okay, where's this serve going? Where's this return going? Um, where am I going to hit the next ball? But because if you focus on those details, the winning will take care of itself and it gives you the best chance to win. So it's very hard because, you know, as tennis players, we have to be very aware of the score, but we also can't be so frozen by the score that we don't play our game. So that's what's really interesting about tennis. It make, always makes it interesting. Yeah. And it's so funny too, because a lot of us, like it's even just like 
USCA league matches or whatever that were like going crazy and getting nervous. And then you think yeah. about the professionals that they have, you know, points on the <laughs> line and hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars on the line yep. and they're, they're able to focus. Like you said, it, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty amazing. But I think that that also comes into, um, to the way that amateurs and the way that pros think of points is so different also. I mean, pros understand when they can take more risk based on the score. Mm-hmm. I think most amateurs probably play every point very, very similar. Um, I also think that, you know, pros think they always think of two balls. They always think of the, the ball they're hitting and they always think of the next ball. And amateurs, especially if you go down to, you know, three, five, four, oh, doubles leagues, a lot of times they're, they're thinking about just making the ball they're hitting and that's it. And you'll have these long extended rallies where nobody's poaching if it's doubles, <laughs> nobody's coming to the net. And, and it's almost like a badge of honor. I played a four hour doubles match this today. And it's like, no, you, you know, that just means you, you, you're in a pillow fight basically. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, I mean, like I was at a sectionals tournament last year and I was seeing these, uh, three, oh, maybe the women's player, uh, you know, not knocking on any particular um, yeah. division or anything, but it was just like the two baseliners were just hitting back and forth. The two net players were just watching and yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, as a coach just not willing to take any risk, you know, like yeah. that's you, you have to take some risk. And, yeah. and if you will also, if you allow the scoreboard to dictate when you take that risk, then it frees you up as well because you, you have to understand that 30 love when you're up 30 love, it's definitely different to when you're down 30 love. Um, so you can't play every point the same. And, and you know, if you and your partner, if you're a doubles player, if you and your partner talk about that. Um, then you can sort of strategize and, and play better tennis. Yeah, great stuff, Joel. So um, in terms of singles and doubles, um, I mean, maybe the answer is obvious, but is the is singles like a totally different game from doubles? Uh, what, what would you say? Yeah, they're, they're very different strategies. You know, singles, as we were saying earlier, you can play much higher above the net. Um, yeah. you, you can sort of, the, the point can develop indefinitely more ways typically than doubles i think du- uh, doubles it's pretty set in in what you're looking to do against your opponent so one one of the big keys to, to doubles is playing as a team and not not playing doubles like singles which means that the net player has to be more involved in the middle um which means that you know the serve locations are very different for instance and, you know in, in singles you're typically trying to pull the player um, off the court to start the point um, but you don't do that as much in doubles because if you go wide in doubles, you're opening up angle for return. So it, it's very different. There are some sim- similar skill sets and they definitely can complement each other, but it's just a, it's a whole different strategic animal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, as, as a player, I played pretty much 98% singles and I was mostly a counterpuncher, I'd say. And um, yeah, it was a tough transition to doubles. And, you know, with certain players, I would, comfortably just chip back my returns and then yep. you know if you do that it's yep. gonna be destroyed so most of the time anyway um, yeah. so yeah it's, it's definitely a, a different game how would you suggest players who are singles players adjust like what types of things should they be doing to uh, better acclimate themselves to the game of doubles i mean for sure like you just hit on it like work on the return the return is you know it's it, it's, it should be locked in hard and low over the net and um, you, you have to be a little bit more aggressive with the return in, in doubles because of the danger of that net player on the first ball. So, you know, you also you have to play closer to the baseline typically. You, you don't want to play super far behind the baseline 
because if you do, you're not as effective. The net player can sort of poach and the front of the court on your side is, is also a problem. But, you know, you also have to work on your hands and being able to take pace when you're close to the net. If you're a, if you're a good doubles player, you know, they spend a lot of time very close to the net, close to the middle and using the pace of, of a big ground stroke and redirecting it or even absorbing pace. Some players really struggle at the net to absorb pace. It's a big part of being a good volleyer. Yeah, thanks for that, Joel. And speaking of that, um, you know, and again, you know, obviously I'm not trying to act like I'm an amazing player. Like I, I struggle sometimes on the back end volley in particular. Uh, and so you mentioned how like we, we should be able to absorb pace as a volleyer. And so I'm curious about, you know, volleys in general, like some, some general tips that you can give us so that we can, you know, hit better volleys. Because when you watch the pros, you know, and even, you know, yourself as well, uh, you, you make it seem so easy when you're volleying. So I'm curious if you could kind of enlighten us as to maybe a few keys that commonly maybe amateur players make uh, technical mistakes on. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of players don't use their, their offhand very well on most, stroke, most strokes, but especially on the, on the backhand, it really helps to turn the shoulders. You know, there's sort of three types of volleys. There's a, a wall volley where you're just using the pace of your opponent's ball. Mm -hmm. That's really common in doubles. The, the baseline player rips it at you and you just basically become a wall and deflect it back at, the, at his opponent, uh, sorry, his partner. Um, there's also a you know, cut volley where you're at the service line approaching. You've got to um, keep the ball nice and low, so you've got to apply some backspin to that ball and, and keep it skidding through the court. And then there's the catch volley where you're taking pace off the volley. And that's where you're trying to keep the racket head up and come around the ball and, and sort of angle off by using the opponent's pace. So there's, there's sort of three main volleys there and you've got to be proficient at using all of those. But I, I, definitely, um, I definitely think that using spin and being able to use the ball's force that's coming at you is very important. Leading with the edge is something that I get my players to do a lot when they go for their volleys, not leading with the, with the square racket face. So that would be a, that would be a wall volley. But if I need to angle it or I need to take some pace off the ball, then I'll lead with the edge, that front edge. So if you're in a ready position, um, that edge that's pointing at the net, that's going to lead. And if you can get your feet to the ball as well, you'll be able to absorb some pace and find some angle. And that's a, that's a huge volley for singles, but also for doubles. Gotcha, Joel. That's great stuff. With the volley, is there any other accept acceptable grip than the continental? Like, Do you have any players who they have like, an Eastern or something like that, and you just say, you know what, this looks fine, or do you always have them uh, use the Continental? Yeah, look, it depends if it's a problem or not. You know, I, I definitely have some of the ladies that I coach that will use a different grip on volleying, but they can do it fairly well. So, you know, it depends on their level and their aspirations, but why would we change something that they can do well? And I think that's, we don't need to change everything if it's if it's working. Um, I, I mean, ideally, you would be in one grip for the, for half volleys, volleys, overheads, anything up at the net in the front of the court. But um, if you happen to be able to do something very well and you don't need to change that and, and, you know, and you don't have aspirations to play at a very high level, then I think that's okay. But it really depends on, on your goals and, and the level of competition because, as you know, you're not really going to get away with um, volleying like with a forehand grip if you're playing super high level. But maybe you will at a certain you know, level of doubles or social tennis. Yeah, that's a great point to kind of define your goals or you want to be yeah. at, and then you might not need like uh, amazing technique, yes. you just use strategy and all that. Yeah. And uh, as far as uh, singles, Joel, I just want to touch upon maybe a couple of your favorite plays, you know, like maybe if you had a playbook that you could kind of 
tell yeah. us a couple that are, are really effective, simple plays that we can just go out there and try to practice and that'll be really effective for us. Yeah, one, so one of them is, is called the 2-1. I think that's pretty common now, but it does work at every level where you're going to pinpoint the player's weaker side and you're going to try and hit deep. The first ball goes deep to that side. The second ball, you would look to upgrade to your best shot. So for most people, that's a forehand. If you can hit the second ball with a little bit more direction and run them off again on their weaker side, it'll open up a hole on the other side and that's where you go with the third ball. So it would be two. Let's say I'm playing you and your backhand is your weakness. Mm -hmm. Then I would try and go deep to your backhand in the first one, wider to your backhand on the second, and now you're off the court and I have a hole to, to attack. And even if your forehand is your best stroke there, you're on the run to hit it, so you're not going to be more, as effective. And I'm probably going to be able to get a forehand on the next ball, which I can go back to your backhand. So that's a really good pattern to practice is the 2-1 is the pattern. And, and sometimes you know, you'll see it a lot in the pros, but sometimes it becomes a 3-1 if the opponent is fast recoverer or you don't get the second ball wide enough. Sometimes it's a 4-1, but it's a, a, that's a, pl a play in singles that you should be looking to use a lot, actually. Love it. That's really good. Um, yeah, actually, I, I did a strategy video maybe a few weeks ago or so, but I can remember the the player, he had a, a, very, a deep backhand that pushed the player back, and then he went for a, a, a short angle backhand, and the player was way off, and then he you yeah. know he had an easy winner. So that, yeah. that's a really good one there. Appreciate that. Also, just uh, curious about uh, maybe some, maybe a coaching tip or two. Uh, you know, may, is there anything in particular where uh, you know, you've been coaching all these years now, like a philosophy or an approach that you had initially that through a mix of experience and also maybe uh, learning from other coaches or in, and other sources that you actually maybe change that approach or ideology. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely all the data that's come out on rally length has changed how I coach significantly. I mean, I, I did, I used to spend a lot more time rallying ground strokes and then um craig o'shaughnessy basically his data came out and i've been lucky enough to become friends with craig since about 2015 and so i've kept up with all the stuff that he's put out which is amazing but um it's really changed you know definitely how i approach practice even for juniors going forward in their development because we don't spend as much time doing longer rallies we definitely work on the serve and the return more even from a young age and all of the technique that um, we do, we always give it a strategy theme. So if we're working on a backhand technique, then I've got a target up at the middle of the ad court, for instance, and I told her, her or him why that we're doing that, you know, so, to, so we can draw an error. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things that's changed in regards to, you know, the data and how I've approached coaching. But I think the, the thing that's remained constant for me is that you can't get better at everything every day. But you, you can get better at one thing every day. And that's been my sort of philosophy is good, consistent improvement. And it's only little things. You know, you know, if you're having a tough day on your forehand or your backhand, then let's get you better at the net on a volley. So every practice that you have, there's something that you've added to your toolbox. Yeah, that's great stuff. I forget if it was Bruce Lee or, or somebody else who the quote that said, like, I fear the man who practices yeah. the one kick 10,000 times rather than somebody who practices... Yeah you know, 10,000 different things, something like yeah. that. Probably butchered it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, I know I, yeah. And, and, uh, so Joel, um, also just what curious about, uh, you know, what, what you're doing right now. Um, if, if you could tell us like that, maybe the programs that you're 
teaching and all that yeah. and and another thing up I'll, I'll ask you after that like how we can get in touch with you and all that too yeah for sure so i'm um, i'm based in coronado in san diego and um i'm basically right now i'm a private coach for um, a lot of top level juniors a lot of doubles players um, and singles players and we have some junior programs here that run um are running even during COVID at the moment that are open for enrollment um but yes yeah, so i'm do, doing my own thing uh it's been really privileged to be able to coach so many very good juniors here in san diego and um i'm looking to continue to do that but that's that's my uh my goal is to really work on developing players that's my passion and um i'm very lucky at the moment because i get to get to work with um a lot of top players so it's a great place to be here in san diego have you ever been to coronado uh no i haven't but i mean i definitely want to go Dude, I, I will you, go yeah it's it's amazing it's amazing once you drive over the bridge it's very lucky to be here in this spot Awesome, man. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, I'm glad you're in such a great place. Yeah. And uh, so you've got uh, Joel Myers Tennis Duck, uh, yeah. which I imagine is a really good place to get in touch with you. Any any yes. other places as well for us to be able to follow you and see what you're doing? Yeah, so you can, you know, I'm pretty active on Instagram. It's probably my main one. Um, you can follow me at uh, Joel underscore Myers underscore tennis or at Twitter. I'm also on there as well. So it's Joel Myers Tennis. But I like to, um, I like to update stuff like, share drills i'm doing players that i'm working with and things that I'm, I'm learning so i understand that this is a big learning experience and um it's a it's something that i've been happy to share with with people and they seem to like it so i'll keep doing it yeah i think they really like it i mean i was checking out your website obviously you know before the interview and i saw you know some amazing people commenting uh basically giving you a testimonial you know like coach peter smith from usc and then craig o'shaughnessy that we talked about paul anacone Marcus Willis, who uh, played Federer in Wimbledon, legend. And Dr. Mark <laughs> yeah, Alistair McCaw. So, yeah, impressive stuff. Um, you know the way you you've built everything up, Joel. And I want to ask you too about you know interesting question. But if you were to be able to uh, put up uh, a huge billboard and you know let's say in Coronado or or any like huge city in California that you know would be uh, seen by a ton of people. Uh, what what would you write on it to tell people? What would I write on on a on a big billboard about myself or about tennis or? Uh, just in general, like to basically it would be something that that you think would actually really help people. Um, you know, whether it's with tennis or just generally. In in tennis, I would I would say, and I and I like to I like to remind my players of this that if you win fifty five percent of all the points you play in the match, you're going to win six three six three. So. That's on average. So be nice to yourself. Allow yourself that 45%, you know, points lost because a lot of people can't do that. They're too perfectionist for our sport. You really can't be a perfectionist in tennis. You got to be easy on yourself. Realize that 55% is a very good day. Three and three. I mean, we'd all take a three and three win over anybody. So, you know, understand that and you'll be a much better tennis player. Awesome. Yeah, I really love that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're not machines. You know, you see people nah. missing two shots in a row and they're going yeah. ballistic. It's like, you yeah. know, you still Well, have, I think, um, you know, that's that's data that Craig, like Craig has, right? And so he, he yeah. brought it out that, you know, almost every year it's like 55% of the points is what the world number one win, men, men and women. And then he put out the stat that I think it was Nadal wins 56% of the French Open. And you're just like, that's insane. He's won, you know, 13 French Opens. He's won 56% of the points. It's, it's absurd. So, you know, if you're the type of player that struggles mentally on court, um, you can, you can think about that 
differently and it's not perfection you're looking for it's 55 percent. 100 percent, joel uh so yeah i mean uh is there anything else that you want to just let the audience know about or uh you know give them wisdom about before we uh uh, sign off. I guess I know you have uh, a lot of stuff to do. You're a busy man. So anything else? Uh, to let no, I think uh, I think we covered it, man. I just want to say thanks for, for having me on. I've listened to many, many of your podcasts to to get a lot of lot of information. And um, yeah, you've been an awesome resource for tennis coaches and players. And I think everyone really appreciates that because it takes a lot of time to do this stuff. So um, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate it. I mean, again, you know, you do an awesome job. Like. Yeah, you guys should definitely uh, check out Joel Myers uh, Tennis.com and also definitely uh, Joel's Instagram page, which we will uh, link up in the show notes because there uh, is a, a ton of great videos and in- instructional videos where uh, Joel breaks things down. I think there was one on the two ended backhand that was really enlightening for me as well. And, you know, there's tons of strategy stuff, and you're going to see a lot of these best players in the world, their technique getting broken down and Joel hitting shots and teaching you as well. So, Thank you. It's really great stuff. And uh, Joel, before we go, what what yeah. is your uh, Instagram handle again? It's at Joel underscore Myers underscore tennis. So it's cool. at Joel underscore Myers underscore tennis. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, uh, Joel, thanks again for coming on to the podcast and uh, appreciate your time and keep up the great work. And I'm sure we'll talk again real soon. Absolutely. You too, Milan. Thank you. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Coach Joel Myers. And if you're curious about any of the links mentioned, then you can go to tennisfiles.com slash podcasts or uh, tennisfiles.com slash 313 to uh, find those links and click on them. And if you enjoyed this episode, I really would really would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcasts or any uh, app you use to listen to the show. Um, but Apple Podcasts does drive the visibility of the show and the rankings and so forth the most we find so you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash apple podcasts uh, and really appreciate it also just want to leave you with a quote as i do at the end of every show and this one is by jim quick uh, who's known for a lot of great content regarding um you know the brain and learning and things like that and jim says if knowledge is a power then learning is a superpower Really good one there. Um, So definitely knowledge, learning, and then putting that learning into action. uh, Super important there. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Looking forward to bringing you more great content. And also we have the City Open next week. So that's going to be super exciting for me. Uh, It's a local tennis tournament here in the D.C. area, actually in D.C. So um, that'll be super fun. All right, have a great one, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is your host, Mirabhan Aranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.